Welcome to Boz to the Future. Conveniently, I am Boz, uh, also known as Andrew Bosworth. I lead Facebook Reality Labs, uh, working on very future-looking technology here at Facebook. And today I am joined by a household name in technology journalism, Casey. Casey, would you agree that you are a household name? That That is for other people to say. I'm always charmed when anybody knows my name. So if you know my name, that's <laughs> delightful to me. Um, so Casey Newton uh, leads a, a publication called The Platformer, which he started a year ago, uh, not quite a year ago, I guess, a little less than a year. Um, and it's really, I think, uh, for those who don't know, I subscribe to a relatively small number of newsletters. In fact, I subscribe to three of them, of which I only pay for two. One is Platformer, uh, the other being Ben Thompson's Stratechery, uh, and Zainab Tufekhi's newsletter, which covers a pretty wide, broad range of topics. Um, I think The Platformer, for anybody who is out there wondering... You know, what's the number one story of the day? You're going to get a great breakdown from Casey on that uh, at the end of every day. And also a really good summary of all the kind of discourse that happens over the course of the day. Uh, Casey, give me the how it started and how it's going picture for Platformer. Yeah. Um, so Platformer started um, with a previous newsletter, honestly. So like in 2017, I had spent a year being depressed about the election. Social media was kind of my beat. The tenor of coverage had really changed. All of a sudden, we weren't talking about uh, all of the new features that y'all were working on. We were talking more about the unintended consequences of these networks. And instead of just reading stories all day and then doing nothing with that information, I thought, well, why don't I put it to, in, in a newsletter? I, I felt overwhelmed by all of the coverage I was reading every day. And I thought it'd be useful to put it in one place. So I started doing that and got a good response to it. Um, initially, the focus of the newsletter was really just on kind of curating links. But eventually, I started writing more commentary analysis, and then finally putting original reporting into the newsletter as well. Um, and after I did it for about three years at The Verge, uh, I thought, you know what, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, there's no offices anymore. What's the point of working for a big media company? I'm just going to try doing this thing by myself. So by that point, Substack was around and I started Platformer in October of last year. And uh, I'm happy to say that it is going well. It is is my living now. It's the best job I've ever had. Uh, and I'm really excited about the future. So it's been a really fun uh, path from, you know, a, a germ of an idea to an honest to goodness business. I've, I wonder, has, has being an entrepreneur where you're just, you're responsible for everything yourself, has that changed how you think about technology or other entrepreneurs that you cover? Because, uh, you know, you are having to now do some of those tools directly yourself. Yeah, I do think that starting a business gives you empathy for other people who are running businesses. Um, and, you know, I, honestly, though, I'm somebody who always liked talking to entrepreneurs. I think that living in Silicon Valley just made me more entrepreneurial through osmosis, right? Like everyone you meet at a party is working on some <laughs> idea or right. project. And I think that just like, kind of seeped into my bones. And um, eventually it did make me feel like I could do it. Um, I would also just say that like newsletters are an easy mode business, right? Like you're like making <laughs> like brain reading like wristbands and I type in a box and email people. <laughs> Like they're very different <laughs> projects. So it's sort of like this sort of gives me like the um, the upside of running a business without like the many headaches involved in like, for example, like hiring people, running a newsroom, anything like that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's this is actually super interesting. This is what I want us to spend time on today. The the format, the reason I'm doing this podcast at all, there's obviously tremendous wealth of great podcasts out there. And I've had the good fortune of being on a few when you're in podcasts, a lot of times the incentive that they have is to go really broad. So if they get someone like me on the show, they want to just cover as much ground as possible. 
And as a consequence, it's hard to go deep. And I do think some of the most interesting questions about the technology that's emerging, the trends that we're seeing today, is to say, how does this play out over five or 10 years? Um, I'm actually, I, I, I'm struck by the, the Silicon Valley show. Uh, the first season, the Peter Thiel character, like, discovers that Burger King's buns have sesame seeds on them. And then he like overlays the cicada map of like the Southeast Asia where the sesame seeds are being grown and like shorts sesame seeds, you know, seven years in the future. Like, I like that kind of just like, let's follow this thread way too deep, way beyond what's relevant. And the thing I really wanted to spend time with you on, um, both as it relates to you personally, frankly, but also kind of more broadly is like what it means for all these tools the creation tools, the distribution tools to be in the hands of individuals. When previously they were in the hands of publishers, uh, in the hands of media conglomerates, you know, for me, I think that's just such a fascinating area. And I'm kind of hoping to spend the majority of our time together in that space and exploring the implications um, on a lot of, of people. Um, before I do that, is there anything I missed about your introduction? I hate introducing people because I feel like it's always a Wikipedia readout <laughs> that people could just get on their own and it like misses the Is there more context that you want people to have about you that I missed? Two two things. So one is um the and you don't you honestly don't have to correct this because it's just funny to me, but my publication is platformer, not the platformer. It's very funny oh, that people at Facebook important. often call it the platformer because of course Facebook <laughs> was originally the Facebook. So I think there's something Freudian going on there. Um but yeah, I love it's just it. platformer. Um so that's just one thing. And two, like if if you haven't read Platformer and you're wondering what it's about, I do write primarily about the big tech platforms, but with a real focus on social networks. I don't say that it's only about social networks because I like the flexibility to write about Apple or Amazon when they're writing about something particularly platformy. Um, but that is the main thing that I'm covering, right? Is like, what is the intersection between big tech and democracy? When did Justin Timberlake get to you? <laughs> I mean, you as, a, as a young man, the... when, he released <laughs> Justi- when he released Justified, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Uh, forgive me. I, I, it's, it's such a definitive, uh, such a definitive publication. I put the definitive article in front of it and I, I've mis I've misled our readers already. No, I like it's to a hear terrible. It. Yeah. So uh, another thing I've, I found out about myself is I keep referring to what are clearly listeners as readers. Uh, you can tell that I think in terms of, of writing, um, so, so yes, forgive me. Platformer is a fantastic sub, uh, service. I, I recommend subscribing to it uh, and paying for it. Um, and I do, I agree. It's funny. I hadn't even considered that it was a social network oriented one because you do cover the top issue of the day across tech. Um, and really it is, you've, you've done a great job of bridging to society. I mean, you know, and I'm not, those who know me know that I'm not one to blow smoke. I'm not inclined yeah. <laughs> to be overly generous if I don't actually believe something. I won't say it. So that's a, that's a true story. Thank you. Let me start with, you know, you actually you said something kind of funny earlier, which is like you type into a box and you send it out. I do like this idea that you basically got so good at email <laughs> that people now pay you to email them. I have, I have seriously considered changing my Twitter bio to email salesman, and I may still do it. I just, but it's, but it's true, right? Like at some point you, at some point you mastered email and some of it's because you're obviously doing uh, in-depth, very thoughtful work. You're also very funny. You have a, you have an entertaining, a charm, a spin that you put on all the the stories. But but like, for me, this is actually a really important concept that I want us to think about. Um, Let me throw this concept at you. TikTok is, uh, has discovered a surplus in society of funny, uh, talented, musical, uh, dancing people and they were just out there and they were amazing at like rapping and there, there wasn't like they weren't amazing enough to do like a 
to drop an album. They weren't going to get a deal, but they're like amazing relative to like me or what I, <laughs> what I would see on an average day. And if I saw them, I'd say, oh, that's, that's amazing. And like, there's this huge wealth of talent out there that previously had no market and a market's been created for them. And now we, we see what's happening. This, this feels like one of the, the interesting things that the internet has brought is people with like really deep, specific interests finding their people, finding a global marketplace for their their thoughts, for their work. C- completely. I mean, I think that honestly, it has a lot to do with the way that business models shape the creation of content. Like, yes, there is a piece of it that is just like the internet democratizes things and helps more people participate. Um, but when it comes to somebody like me who identifies strongly as a journalist who's doing original reporting, I've just also operated in a business ecosystem that has changed a lot and the kind of media formats have changed along with it. Like my first job was at a newspaper. Newspapers were regional monopolies. Regional monopolies were incented to write very straight down the middle, quote unquote, objective coverage that did not have a strong voice or a point of view. My editors used to criticize me when I write about politics or saying, you know, we can sort of tell how you feel about this subject. You need to take that out of the story. Hmm. Then I moved to the web. Uh, The web was doing well for a while. Then Facebook, YouTube come along, start eating up the lion's share of the ad revenue. The only way that these publications can win is by taking 100 swings every day. I mean, seriously, publications, you know, publishing 50, 60 stories in the hopes that their what time is the Super Bowl article will hit the top of that Google search box. And that's how they'll be able to pay their bills. So that dramatically changes the kind of content that gets produced, right? Twitter, I think, has also changed the kind of content that gets produced because people realize that uh, the angrier you are, the more likely people are to to click that retweet button, right? So all of these incentives have just really shaped the the way that media gets created and consumed. Um, Newsletters, the thing that I love about them is that it is actually like a very chill format, right? I can't Hmm. arrive in your inbox every day screaming because you're going to, you're going to unsubscribe from that, right? Like, and my, my natural, um, uh, like personality is to be rather relaxed, even about extremely serious and complicated issues. And so that format just happens to be really good for me. But it's also a distribution hack, right? This is a Ben Thompson line. Email's the only feed that you're already checking that I can insert myself into for free. Um, and so that created an opportunity. So it, it really is like my business is just taking advantage of some of these changes in the media business to create a kind of media that is just kind of like that, that suits me and my personality better. But like YouTube and I, so I uh, obviously I agree as it relates certainly to, to written word in general, I think journalism specifically, but the written word in general, I think an analysts who used to work at big analytics firms and publish reports are increasingly going direct. And some of the most popular substacks are like very specific niche things about like, you know, the politics of, of certain sectors of Latin America or like the oil and gas industry. And so, you know, I think there's people who, who, who traffic in the written world, whether it be journalism or analytics are finding that. But there's also a set of people who, for whom, you know, it didn't start at least as a business motivation. The YouTubers who came, you know, over the last 10 years, um, but more lately, obviously, you think about TikTok stars, people on Instagram, influencers, you know, I certainly think we're seeing a generation of kids now who do aspire to build a brand and a business for themselves. But that's not how it started. Like a lot of these people were just kind of, you know, Especially, especially on TikTok, I do see some phenomenally talented people. Let's think about today's the controversy of the day, as far as I can tell. I check Twitter, is around a beekeeper in Texas. Okay. 
you could, if you had put on a bingo card <laughs> that a beekeeper in Texas would be a thing I was going to say today, right. you couldn't, I wouldn't, you know, a bingo card of it had to have been a mile wide for it to be on there. But here I am, and I, I know more than I care to know, but thanks to Taylor uh, and her, her great work at New York Times, on, about a beekeeper in Texas and the controversy around her dark clothing, I guess, which apparently is not how you handle bees. I don't handle bees at all. This is easy for me. I just don't do it. But this, but this person didn't get into this because they had a profit motive. So it does feel deeper to me than just the business model. Yeah, uh, It feels like the tools are going to have a profound impact on people's willingness to engage like niche interests. Yeah. Although again, I think people's interests have always been much broader than what gets captured in the big publications of the day, yeah. right? Like, you know, Substack is having a moment now, but before Substack, there was blogging and blogging was also really diverse totally. and it was super niche right? And then Twitter came along and it, like it, it sort of, um, it, it captured those interests, but it like sort of boiled everything down. And so it didn't have like the richness and the depth and the the nuance that we used to get from blogging. Now it's kind of coming back to, to uh, via, via Substack. So you know, but but to your point, like yes, people have an absolutely huge number of interests, and it is great that we can sample so many more of them uh, now in, in so many places. Obviously, an, a topic that I'm sure both of you are, and I consider ourselves experts on high school and what high school is like for high schoolers today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're, we're clearly clearly both very close to the modern high schoolers. Yes. Um, uh, I would like I'd love to be a little closer. But my kids are six and three, so it's not really they're not really approaching that age. Uh, I you know. One of the things I do think is interesting to look at is so many of these trends are analyzed to death by people in our generation, and they're put in these business school kind of terms. But like when you look at young people, it's just native for them. They don't. There's no uh, framework that they're they're not analyzing like how to spend my time in a framework of maximization. They're just like in the struggle of of understanding their own self and their own identity and the identities of others. What do you think? Um, what like. What do you think is the natural consequence to where media goes? Now, again, I don't mean just journalism. I mean, like all of media, like entertainment. Yeah. When people have these tools to create at much broader scale without as many gatekeepers. Yeah. So it's going to be a mixed bag. Um, you know, I'll start with sort of the, the, the serious part of it, which is that we have um, uh, one of our many crises in this country is that we are losing too many journalists. New York, uh, the New Yorker reported uh, earlier this year that we lost 16,000 journalism jobs in the United States last year. These are the people doing the real nuts and bolts work of just keeping eyes on our democracy. They're going to the city council meetings, the zoning board hearings. They're kind of creating that sense of community that I think is really important for the survival of democracy. So we need to find a way to bring those people back and hopefully to create many more such people. It seems clear that the current models that we have, which are sort of big publications doing subscriptions and ad-supported digital websites, uh, will not be enough to, to bring all those people back. Um, so what can we do about it? Well, I think we should go directly to people, right? Like part of mm. what Platformer is doing is trying to experiment around how big a business can you build by going direct? You know, again, I'm doing this on easy mode. I'm writing about the technology industry during the biggest moment it's ever had, right? Like that, that should not be that hard of a newsletter to make succeed. If I was covering Scottsdale, Arizona via a newsletter, which is what I used to do um, when I was a, a local newspaper reporter, that would probably be harder to build up a subscription base. But would it be 
that hard to make the thirty-five or forty thousand dollars a year I was making covering the city of Scottsdale via newsletters? Um, maybe not, right? And so maybe we can experiment there. So Substack has just launched a big uh, round of, of subsidies for local journalists who are working in local communities. Um, Axios, which is a big venture-backed media company, they're also doing a big local program. So I think that there is something there, and I do think that we can start adding back some jobs covering uh, local journalism, and you know, hopefully. Uh, many other topics by by going direct. Um, you know, there's a, a second and, and more hopeful point that I hope is true, which is that I hope that these kind of um, go direct measures enable a more diverse kind of um, journalism to succeed than we've seen in the past. American journal, uh, American newsrooms have traditionally not been uh, very diverse for all the reasons that most American workplaces aren't very diverse. Um, so now that you don't need permission to have a journalism job and you can just create a, a Substack or a ghost or a WordPress site and start charging people directly, my hope is that we'll see people get into this who have not been doing it before. Because if you can find your 500 or 1,000 subscribers, you're probably going to be able to make a decent living in a huge number of American communities. So that's kind of the more hopeful tag I would put at the end of that story. And what's interesting to me for this is you you've, you highlighted something in there which it's not necessarily a consequence of the internet. In fact, I think it I think the shift preceded the internet, but the collapse of the institutions that drove local community, um, you know, whether it be uh, the, you know, reduction in attendance around church, um, things like, you know, Rotary Club, Elks Club, pick a favorite community centers, um, physical communities started to collapse, you know, in the eighties and nineties to a degree. And some of that was like, you know, concepts of mobility. People are moving neighborhoods. When you move around, you're not putting down deep roots and you think you might move again. Um, how much do you invest locally in the community? I think the same thing is true. You know, national politics is, is is so often the center stage when local politics is so often more likely to impact people um, in their daily lives. Um, there is something very interesting here where I don't think these are causal, but I think the fact that these trends are happening at the same time um, is interesting. And so, okay, you do have, let's, let's play this out. This is the whole, this is the podcast concept. <laughs> you play this out. You've got this world where you've got a lot more people going direct and suddenly communities are virtualized. They're still meaningful and people are finding their, their need for community on Facebook groups, um, through Instagram personalities that they resonate, that resonate with them, that they follow through, um, uh, journalists who they pay directly in exchange for kind of the, the dialogue they get there. You've actually even embraced that further. You've, you've worked, you've teamed up with several other, uh, Substack journalists and created side channel. Do you want to talk about side channel briefly? Actually, probably good for people to know about it. Yeah, so um, SideChannel is a Discord server that I share with seven other independent journalists. Most of us are on Substack. Nick Hua runs Hot Paw, which is on on its own website. Sorry, Nick. That's fine. Um, But the idea is that if you pay for any of our newsletters, then you get access to the entire community. So, um, And and there's kind of a coherence to the subjects that we cover. So we have, uh, you know, Delia Kai, who writes about um, media. We have Kim Zetter, who writes about cybersecurity um, and 
Helen Peterson writes about remote work. Um, and, you know, and, and there's other folks who are sort of in that kind of tech media work culture realm. And the idea is you can come see what the conversations of the day are. You can interact with us. It's a little bit like being inside a virtual newsroom, like kind of what the newsroom slacks uh, were that, that I used to be in. Um, sure. But yeah, but, but, you know, also, you know, we're, we're doing live interviews in there um, and just trying to explore what it's like to c- collaborate as a community of writers and as like kind of a, a worker owned collective as opposed to like a venture backed media startup or something like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's early days, but the response has been good. And I feel like there's a, a lot more cool stuff we can do there. The reason I bring up, I won't call it the side channel. The reason I bring up side channel, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stop doing that. The reason I bring up side channel is just like, so, okay, so it's an example here of a community that's really a, a, a self-selecting community. It's a community of people who've chosen to engage in that. And, and as a consequence, there's some alignment of voice. There's uh, a series of, there's quite a few journalists I can imagine you would not invite to be a part of your uh, side channel community. Uh, they don't align to the type of the vision that you're pulling together. And if you invited them, you might even fracture the community that you had built there. This has been one of the great fears that people had on the internet. And it it strikes me as both a great and a terrible thing. It's a great thing for people to be able to find communities. I think back to being a kid who played Magic the Gathering in high school. And for a little while, it was cool. Then it wasn't cool, but I still wanted to play it. But I wasn't like sure it was cool to ask who else wanted to play it or like to be the kid who's playing Magic the Gathering. Um, it was, this, this was not a major trauma in my life, but it's like, <laughs> I like the idea that young people who have an interest can go find a whole community of people who share that interest. I really benefited growing up. I was in 4-H. It's a, you know, a very popular youth organization. Um, and it, it, it gave me a lot of confidence that I could be interested in things that my school classmates were maybe judgy about, but you know, these, this is a community of people that were really positive about niche kind of bizarre specific interests. Um, and I think that was good and healthy for me. So I'm, I'm excited to some degree that kids have access to that. So that's great. And I think it's not, it's not just for kids. It's everybody, you know, people who want to be a part of a cooking community or knitting community. They don't have it in their family or in their immediate surrounds. How cool that we can go connect with that. That's the power. But at the same time, it also reduces the pressure for us to fix the physical local communities, yeah. which are not just, politically important. Uh, they're important as we go about our lives. Um, and you know, I'm curious, like, how does this play out? How do you see that playing out for people? What what are the, what are the forces that help us rekindle the feeling of physical communities? Gosh, you know, that's a place where I feel pretty much at square one. Um, like, and the way you know this is if you've ever like seen a couple that's been together for longer than two weeks, what are they doing when they're sitting next to each other? They're looking at their phones, right? It's like even the person who's closest to you in the world finds you less interesting than almost literally anything going on in their device. (laughs) And so I think that is a huge challenge to recreating (laughs) physical communities, right? Is, um, you know, like if you're, if your spouse isn't (laughs) that into you, like, you know, what what luck does does your neighbor have? Um, I think I'm I am somewhat encouraged by some of the local community efforts we're seeing uh, startups make. Like you know, people are trying to. Uh, you know, I saw like a, 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 a company raised a bunch of money uh, yesterday to do like apartment based social networking, basically yeah. like borrow a cup of sugar type stuff. Um, 
that's good. Um, I think Next Door is, has been kind of a mixed bag, um, but I think there's probably a way to do it that is less about like identifying scary looking strangers on the street and is yeah. more about like getting people to do positive things. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to fall into the trap of being like, well, you know, it, it has to have a tech solution. Um, you know, yeah. I don't know, man. Like the internet is a tidal wave, right? Like it's it it is upending everything and. Uh, whatever the future like I, I don't think it's going to look like you know it, it looked like 20 or 30 years ago no matter what we do i think we're gonna have to find some kind of new equilibrium but like i'd be curious to know what you think about that right because yeah. you're building the technology that will only make actual reality seem lamer right it's like if you succeed at everything you're doing i'm not going to want to take off your virtual <laughs> reality helmet so it's like, in a way, like you're, you are on the opposite side of this, aren't you? I don't know that I'm on a side of it. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a technology inevitable person. I think we have a lot of agency here. Um, let me, there's so many, first of all, I'm really tempted to take this just in the direction of Casey's views on dating. Uh, <laughs> Let's get into it. <laughs> you know, because it feels like you have very strong, like went straight to the significant other story <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> yeah. um, and I do think though, part of the trend, absolutely, by the way, is the fact that dating is now so often being done via apps. Um, and you follow Casey on Twitter if you want more, you know, fun, spicy tidbits on how that, and how it, how that affects him. Um, <laughs> but uh, that that puts that takes pressure off also in the local scenes. You don't need to you don't have to go to bars and like suffer through. Here's the thing though about Nextdoor is actually a good example where it's like what we found out with Nextdoor was like we don't always want to know our neighbors. And like I so I there is an interesting thing there as well where just like information doesn't always cause us to feel closer to people. Sometimes it causes us to feel farther from people and that's a little bit, you know, I think um we didn't want to believe that about ourselves as a species. Um but it's there. Uh, and it's not going to go away. And and so being able to be part of these communities that are selected, of course, I'd rather be in a community of people for whom we share some common entry point interest or some common anchor point experience. It's like, okay, at least we have something. Whereas like living physically near one another used to be a super strong indicator of that kind of thing. You used to move into communities that were relatively homogenous. That isn't true. We celebrate that to some degree. We also now see that like, oh, it turns out now like we're in a community of people that we don't relate to and in some cases actively don't like. Um, to, your, to your point about where this goes from a standpoint of like augmented or virtual reality, virtual reality, I think, is definitely like doubling down on the trend, right? So virtual reality is like, um, hey, I want to connect with people. They physically aren't near me because they can't be near me for some reason. And I can do that. Uh, and I think of this is is a good thing. Like, you know, I, it's funny. I just, yesterday was the first day. Uh, I'm, I'm fully vaccinated and we're in good. I had lunch with somebody, like a friend who I hadn't seen in a year and a half outdoors in a cafe, but it was, we had lunch. And it was, I you know, other than the awkwardness of me forgetting how to like, speak casually and have small talk, it was fine. Uh, but it was a profound, it was important to me. Um, and like, but I did actually have some pretty cool experiences with this person, with other people over the course of the pandemic in virtual reality that would have been otherwise <laughs> impossible thanks to, you know, whether it be video calling on portal or whether it be uh, virtual reality. Um, and so I, I think that is people being able to like have these profound experiences. And I think that's a good thing. Again, it's like sometimes like we're just not near the people we love. We can't be because the job we want or the thing that is there, we've got a significant other there. It's like, we've got things we can't always be near people. That's a good thing. I do think, 
augmented reality has the potential to be a countervailing force um, by reducing the physical digital divide. You know, I think uh, it's funny, um, the scene you described just played out last night. My wife and I were at a dinner party and a friend of ours wasn't, and again, dinner parties, how exciting is that? We're doing dinner parties now. Everyone's vaccinated. I don't feel like I have to say that like by law, uh, disclaimer, the lawyers. Yeah. It's still good to say, I encourage everyone to do it. Uh, it's, it's great. Um, the, so we were all on a thread with somebody who we, who couldn't join us and we're all on our threads talking to that person. It's good to say, it's still good. to And say. we're laughing yeah. and exchanging words, but we're also there, you know, it would have been better if we just had AR glasses. We could like have them feel like they're there. That would have been way cooler. Obviously that's what we were trying to affect with these little, you know, glowing rectangles in front of our faces. Um, I also don't think it's true that like anything on the glowing rectangle is better than the people we care about. Um, but I do think like, I, I almost, I kind of feel like we all go out to the internet scavenging for information for like fun for ideas for interesting things and we bring them back to like 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 like, like a retriever to our loved ones like look what i found i found a great link look at this link i found look at this cool link um and like you know there's something satisfying about that and uh and I, I, so i don't none of the, those things don't fundamentally offend me what i do think is interesting is this realignment away from the physical augmented reality will help i think augmented reality will help us navigate the world help us connect more with the world help us blend the physical and digital so we're not having to choose one or the other and what i think probably happens is you're there with a significant other you go together you go together into a space you both see it you're both sharing it you're both exploring it you're talking about it um i think that's a very exciting set of concepts for us to play with i feel really good about how it solves all the close ties what I'm thinking about more and more, though, is just the distant ties uh, and how those are impacted and like the degree to which we all thought the Internet was going to bring us together. And then people were blaming filter bubbles. Like, no, like filter bubbles actually are what the Internet collapsed and it caused us not to like each other as much. It caused us to be actually, oh, it's like, oh, we're actually much farther apart than we realized. We've always been this far apart. But because there was this mainstream narrative that we all got we thought maybe we weren't that far from it. I'm on one side, you're on the other. Now that we're actually like seeing each other, like, oh man, we're really far apart. Like we are not in the same zone. We're just not having the same experience of life at all. Um, and I do think that is one that is tough. Um, maybe empathy building, uh, ex you know, experiences, maybe the ability that, that virtual reality or augmented reality have to give you a first person point of view of the experience somebody else has. We've certainly seen the impact of, you know, cell phone footage of racial, racially motivated violence or police brutality, that the impact that's had on the national understanding, awareness, and psyche of a thing that had been happening all along has been a potentially positive force, a, a disruptive force for the positive. Um, can we go even further? What does it happen if you experience it in a first per in a first person view? Um, does that give you the power as somebody who's skeptical to believe that, you know, you that politically change needs to happen. So one theory of this for me is it is a realignment. It is a tidal wave, as you say, but then when the water recedes, we can rebuild and maybe rebuild in a stronger place. You know, it's really hard to judge those types of, of progress. It is. I mean, I think where I would push you is I think that building empathy should really rise to the top of any anyone's uh, product roadmap who is building a social product, right? Like I think yeah. that to your point, 
networks are good for our, our our friends who who we already know and love. Like everyone else that you encounter online, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever, it's just like a person who cut you off in their car and like you were immediately wishing for their death, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I'm not a murderous person, but I've been cut off on the freeway and now I wish you to no longer exist. And like yeah. social networks are just that over and over again. And I think it points to the way that they're these really thin surfaces for communication, right? All you know about me is my one 280 character reply to you in which I was in, you know, a horrible jerk to you. But actually, I have a rich interior life that, that will never be exposed. So I would just love to see uh, companies like the one that you work on really think hard about what they could do, you know, to, to boost empathy over outrage and to make that person who is so distant from me, who I know nothing about, actually feel like a human being and not just a post. You know, I, I think we agree on that. And for what it's worth, I will point out, and this is a, this is a true story. People won't believe me. It sounds partisan. My experience of Facebook is an incredibly positive one. Uh, I've curated it. Uh, it's people I care about. Where I have people that I feel, you know, family obligations, for example, to be connected to, but I find their posts, I hide those posts. I, we, you know, I really have an incredibly positive experience on Facebook. The fact that people's names, it's pictures, it makes a big difference. I think, you know, you uh, might be accused, as, as many journalists often, of spending too much time on Twitter, which I think is a, is a different surface. It's one that I engaged with really seriously with it for a year to try to like really feel it out and like backed off and, and now have a pretty good relationship with it. But I've really carefully curated interest lists. Like I love NBA Twitter. No tech Ben is my favorite Ben Thompson. Uh, no offense to the other Ben Thompson. Um, like I, I, NBA Twitter is really fun. So when I'm watching a game, it's a really positive environment. Uh, actually, there is a really positive tech Twitter out there. If you curate your list right um, of people who are just like, Having serious discussions and they're not ignoring the down like it's it's not negative it's not reactionary it's not the it's not built on on kind of anger and, and outrage so I do think that you do definitely see how little design elements have a big impact on what happens on the network one of the things that we used to get criticized for early on in Facebook which I never believed in people would say you know why you're on this network you're seeing what people eat for breakfast why do you care what they eat for breakfast I've always felt different about that I actually loved that. The intimacy, the like humanity of just somebody like this is my this is my oatmeal, man. Like this is what I did today. You're like you would have to normally live with somebody to get that kind of a thing. Is it profound? Is it important? Maybe not. But you do have this kind of sense, this cadence of awareness of a person, which I always liked. You know, I'm the, I'm somebody I never liked living alone. I've always had roommates. I've always wanted to have roommates. I like having integrating with someone else's whole rhythm and understanding what their rhythm is. And I always felt Facebook from an early on, we were getting mocked for this thing that was actually super profound. It was just so human. It was not a blog post for clout points. It was just like a guy eating some shitty oatmeal. <laughs> like yeah. That was all it was. Yes. Well, I mean, like, you know, this goes to like one of my hobby horses, but like Facebook was better when it was smaller, right? Like when it when it was just the people that you were living with and like your, your close friends, it did have an intimacy to it. And then everybody who you ever sat next to once at a wedding had added you as a friend and all of a sudden, like you didn't want to share as much, right? So but this like, is, yeah, and this is where I do think we have the tools for people to manage, even if you made a lot of random connections to manage your feed really effectively. And I, it's not much work. I've done it. And I, so one thing is I am pretty brutal with friends. I have a, if, if your birthday comes around and we have not spoken since the last time your birthday came around, you're just off you're the gone. friends list, Yeah, you know, um, that's just it. And so I'm a little bit, you know, serious about that. 
but we also, I don't even do that as much anymore because you've got great tools for hiding. I do think people, and I think you think the average person's experience of Facebook is closer to mine than the kind of tech cognoscenti, yeah. you know, zone where they've gone full connector on it. And it's bad. As an experiment, when I, when I got to LinkedIn, I did something different. LinkedIn, I just accepted everything for like the first four or five years. Yeah. It's a wild time. It's really <laughs> wild out there. So I can see how if someone was doing that, you know, it's not, it's not gone well for me over there. I don't know if yeah. it's gone well for anybody, but it hasn't gone well for me. LinkedIn, um, by the way, just truly one of the most fascinating social networks. Like, like it... Um, I never understand anything that's happening over there, but but it's but yeah, it's it's always full of of, of things to to look at. It is full of things. Yeah, uh, we can all agree on that. <laughs> um, the, the, so the last thing I want to kind of talk about is is just like the these. Uh, well, I, I will say what I, one thing consequence I hope of these uh, new distribution things. I do like the fact that gatekeepers are relaxing. We've certainly seen that with the explosion, for example, of you know, black culture and black creators have always been important in media in this country, for example. Um, but it just seems like there's been a real explosion of it as more and more of the gatekeepers have dropped by the wayside. It does feel like a rebalancing and a democratization. And you hate to use that word because it's, it's been a little bit tenuous for the internet, but it feels like a democratization of access for those people who do go deep on a passion and can build audiences around it that like are, are, are compelled not even by the content, but by the passion that person has for the content. Um, and so I am hoping that for, for young people, obviously there's going to be young people who chase the celebrity and the fame. There always has been, you know, that's, that's like the entire LA basin is based on that. So I, you know, that's always been there. Uh, but more than that, people who actually pursue a passion and then turn out to be great communicators around that passion. Uh, I'm really I am actually really bullish on that. I'm excited about that. I think about, I think about this. We've seen it already for some of these short form media around dancing and music. Um, I think it's going to be great for things like for actors. You know, think about all the you know brilliant, talented actors who can't get work. There's going to be way more surface area for them, uh, for for the writers. There's going to be way more surface area for them. Uh, and I, I just, I'm, I am actually excited for art. Like I'm excited for the what it means for art. And this isn't an NFT thing. NFTs might be a part. They may not be a part. But it does just feel like there's more vehicles to make art meaningful and mainstream. Yeah, well, and, and that's because the the tech platforms have finally gotten serious about creator monetization. Like, yeah. I've always thought that the existence of Patreon was such a slap in the face to YouTube, right? <laughs> it was literally a disaffected YouTube creator who could not figure out a way to make a living, even though he was incredibly popular on YouTube. So he started a whole company around it. And now basically every other platform has gotten religion around it. Um, and so, you know, it's like, because social media is now in all of our pocket and because people have gotten really comfortable paying for all sorts of things, whether it's like a Twitch subscription or an OnlyFans or a, or a paid newsletter, um, I, I do think that uh, it is, is enabling a huge um, surge in creativity. And I think that that is going to bring a bunch of people into the mainstream. I mean, like, this is just a capitalism thing, right? Like, capitalism is just based on novelty. And social yeah. media is excellent at discovering novelty um, and and elevating it in, in our minds. Um, and it is going to benefit a lot of people. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And this is, you know, I do think this is, um, I hope that people who are listening get a sense that, you know, Casey, both of us, we're, we're trying to be pretty, we're pretty eyes open about the challenges that the media landscape presents to society. Um, I really, it's like, you know, 
I feel good about the fact that even in even in politics, even for all the disruption in politics, which I think has to work through the system as a young wave of politicians who are more savvy, frankly, get into office. I think we've got to kind of ride a little bit of an awkward interchange between those two things. Um, I like that more people are actually involved in politics relative to when I was growing up. Uh, and I do think that's a direct consequence. We just don't always like what their politics are. <laughs> Uh, but you can't say it's not democratic. Like it's just, you know, it, it, it's, so I do think it's an interesting thing. So, I, but, but we are open eyed, if not, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't have perfect foresight, but we're clear eyed about it. Okay. I, one of the things I want to do is so I, I like to do two deep dive. That's the major deep dive. I want to do a minor deep dive. Now I want to do a minor deep dive on interior decorating. Oh no. <laughs> now this is not inspired by your recent room Raider review, <laughs> but I do think this is interesting. One of the things, every now and then when I was, um, uh, when I wanted to buy a house, <coughs> you go around these houses, you could literally tell whether the house was architected before or after televisions came into vogue. And like, even then, which era of televisions they they were built in? Were they built in like the, the, the deep CRT cathode ray tube television era or like in the shallow thin screen era? And, <coughs> you know, households just changed tremendously. Because suddenly, instead of having all your couches facing each other for when you had company over, you had to have all your couches facing a wall for when company came over uh, to watch a game or whatever the thing was, to watch media. Um, and I think of this all the time, like there's these really funny consequences of technology that are second order effects. Um, I think virtual reality and remote work, you know, and uh, Helen Peterson's uh, work, like that will change the way we think about cities and towns and where we have to be. And that could be an interesting force to our previous conversation that reunites local communities. If people actually now don't have to make those hard choices, maybe they do go back to local communities where they have stronger bonds and how cool would that be? So I think they, these, these digital artifacts have the power to transform the physical world. How do you think people's houses will change in a world where you've got the future of work, we're on video calling a lot um, and we've got infinite access to media and we're door dashing all the time and we're getting Instacart for groceries. Like how do, how do, how do you think houses change? So, I mean, there, there, there's two countervailing forces. Like one is there are a bunch of obvious ways that houses need to change to accommodate all of, all of these uh, transitions we're going through. And two, uh, there's the fact that uh, you can't build a house in most American cities anymore. And so everything yes. <laughs> is just under this incredible strain, right? It's like, you know, right now, like I have a friend named Kara who owns a pretty dope pad in the Castro that happens to have <laughs> a cottage behind it that I can just, you know, live in. And I do pay her rent and it is more than I've ever paid to live anywhere else, but it is a good deal by the standards of San Francisco. It is a one bedroom. Now that I'm running my own business, I would absolutely love to have a second bedroom that could be a dedicated office. Um, I would like to put a, be a bed in there, right? For guests when they, when they stay, I would like to put a Peloton in there because like I, you know, I'm still, uh, you know, as of tomorrow, I will be two weeks post second vaccination shot and would theoretically re-enter a gym. But like, my gosh, it is time to uh, get back to the gym. But, you know, I would also like to be able to do that in my house, right? Um, and I can't because that housing supply is constrained as it is in, in so many cities. Um, you know, so one, let's just hope that we pass a bunch of laws that makes it easier to build new construction for everyone. Um, yeah. you know, but, uh, for, you know, but when those houses are built, 
I like they're just going to be bigger, right? Like if you can afford a house in 2021, you can probably also afford to work from home. And if you can afford to work from home, you're going to want a dedicated space to do that, right? Like it is not fun to spend 18 hours a day on the same couch, just sort of, you know, switching between what screen you're looking at, whether it's a work screen or a pleasure screen. Um, So yeah, a lot of changes coming there. I do think, I think this is fascinating to me. You're right. Uh, I remember um, when I was at Seattle, I was at Microsoft, uh, uh, a friend and I decided to buy a house together as an investment. We were also going to live there. Um, And every house we toured was like, it has like this weird office, but you can use it as a bedroom. I feel like if I was to tour houses now, they'd be like, this has a bedroom, but you can use it as an office. Yes, you don't need to totally, use it as a bedroom. Totally. And so we've completely, re- like having a home office was such a weird thing two years ago. Like why do you have a home office? Like what a weird thing that is. Now it's like a completely like, it doesn't have a home office. Like I can't, I can't be here. Like, I'm just going to be, I, I, especially for, you know, I felt my heart goes out to a lot of families during the pandemic who were working from home. They got young kids, young kids at home. And they just, there's no out like there, you know, you have to, you got to work outside. Like you got to do what you can because there's not space there. Um, I have uh, a little like red light that I put on outside my room to try to convince my three-year-old not to come in when I'm doing a podcast, for example. Oh yeah. No, like that's like a beacon to her. It calls to her. She must come into the room when that light is on. Um, and so, and, and I have obviously a really good setup as far as things go. So no, I, I think it's, I do think it's going to have a huge, I think the work from home, trend. The internet trends are going to have a huge impact. I also th- predict things, especially in, in urban areas, I predict like whole little areas where deliveries can be placed securely that then have like, you know, because there's so much so much package theft now. There's so much uh, grocery theft. I've heard people getting their groceries stolen now. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, there's a whole, I do think there's a whole wave of little changes that are going to happen, but you're right. For any of it to actually happen, we've got to improve the housing supply which is an absolute uh, travesty, certainly in the Bay Area, California as a whole, but arguably the entire nation is not doing well uh, on that. I saw that the housing to rent uh, ratio is is hitting another kind of an all-time high right now, and it's it's absolutely nuts. Um, you're lucky to have a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a landlord. <laughs> yeah. a, a patron, yeah, a landlord, a patron. Uh, okay, here's the quick fire, uh, Casey. We're, we're about to wrap this up. Here's the quick fire round. All right. What is a meme you've seen recently that sparks joy? You know, there. I would, I would sort of say it's a meme page. Uh, there's this Instagram account called Selfies, Food, and Pets uh, that is just absurdist collages of pop culture. Is like sort of the only way that I could describe it. But it'll kind of take like a pop singer from like the 80s or the 90s and then like mash them up with a video game and a pro wrestler. And it's just one of those things where every time like I see it, I just stop and laugh because it is utterly surreal. Um, And God bless the selfies, food and pets Instagram account. All right. That's what's one to follow. What media are you consuming? What are you reading, watching or playing? What's, What's your media that you're consuming right now? Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I really am consuming so many newsletters right now. Um, I would shout out garbage day, which is just a really like fun, smart guide to internet culture. Uh, Ryan Broderick does that. He's part of side channel, but every, you know, edition that comes out, he's got kind of going down some, um, fascinating corner. There's another one I really like by this guy, Luke Winky, that's called on posting. And he just writes about people who post a lot and, and like, sort of like the character <laughs> 
of uh, people who post and he just has a really kind of fresh um take on them um so um he's great as well um and helen peterson who, who you brought up she i mean she she's such a, a fascinating like broad raging culture writer um and i i in particular just love the stuff that she has been doing on remote work and what will the future of work be like and you know what do what do companies owe their employees um so um so yeah like i like all of them i love that you just <laughs> I, I just, just eat sleep breathe the internet like you just it's like everything that you consume is the internet itself or like about the internet it's like it's all a loop all arrows point back to the internet for casey it's like i mean like this, like i i like this is why i do the job that i do right it's yeah. like you, you got to turn the thing you're already doing into your into your job and like that that is happy happiness uh, what is the first like so you just talked about you're fully vaccinated you got to wait your couple of weeks you're you're getting there what is the first like normal uh, or perhaps not normal thing that you plan to do that you couldn't do before you were vaccinated? The first like normal thing. Um, I, I mean, I so I sort of did it this weekend with a bunch of vaccinated friends. We got uh, like rented a house in the Stanislaus National Forest. And Ooh, we, uh, you know, we, we cooked together. We took walks. We went to like, you know, an outdoor, uh, beer garden and like walked around town, you know, but, but it was actually with my improv team, right? I'm this, like, this is my hobby as I do improv. And so uh, we like all eight of us had not been in a room together in like 15 months. And all of a sudden there we were, and we were like laughing and, uh, drinking and eating. And it was fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, your your improv I, I, is one thing I, I look forward to catching at some point. I've seen some of the clips. I've seen some of the pieces. I haven't caught a show yet. Uh, I'm going to put that on my post-vaccination to-do list once you guys get your troop back together for, for a show. Oh, we, we, would we would love to have you. Um, okay. How can the listeners support you, Casey? Where can they find you? Sure. So uh, you can find Platformer, aka The Platformer, at platformer.news. Um, you can sign up for free and you'll get it for free once a week. I try to make that uh, like the edition of the week that has the most reporting in it. Um, but then if you want the full experience, you can subscribe and then you'll get uh, four editions a week and you can join Side Channel and see all the stuff that we're doing there. I really do recommend it. I, people who know me know, again, I don't, I don't uh, make recommendations I don't believe in. Uh, and I think this is some of the best, um, you know, if, you, if there's one thing that's going to tell you what's happening on the internet, especially in tech today, it's going to be Casey Newton's platformer. Uh, no definite order. He dropped the, the uh, consequence of Justin Timberlake. Yeah, it's cleaner. Uh, listen, thank you for being here, Casey. I am such a fan uh, and, and I really appreciate your work. Um, I also want to thank all the listeners. Thank you for listening to Boz to the Future. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, if you do have suggestions for guests, topics, or just things I can do better, you know where to find me. I'm at BozTank on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time. Bye.